the Honorable, the Presiding Judge and Judges of the Court of Appeals of the State of North Carolina. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes, the Court of Appeals is now in session. God save the state and this honorable court. Be seated. documents here. Welcome to the Court of Appeals. I'm Judge Valerie Zachary. To my right is Judge Allegra Collins. To my left is Judge Jeff Carpenter. Assisting us today are Senior Deputy, or Deputy Clerk Roderick McFarland, excuse me sir, and Officer Richard Remillard. We have today two cases that have been consolidated for hearing. Larry Dillard versus the Western North Carolina Conference of the United Methodist Church and the Children's Home Incorporated, and Michael Lakins versus the Western North Carolina Conference of the United Methodist Church and the Children's Home Incorporated. Uh, with regard to the appellants, uh, United Methodist Church and Children's Home, how have you divided your time? Okay, excuse me, I couldn't hear you. I'm sorry. That's all right. Uh, I'm Ashley Peckman. I represent the conference. We do intend to split the time equally between okay. us. Okay. Thank you, Judge, Judge Zachary and panel, and may it please the court. My name is Ashley Kutno, and I represent the Western North Carolina Conference of the United Methodist Church. Throughout all of the documents, and in this case, we normally refer to this defendant as the conference, just to shorten the name. To give you a little background, the Western North Carolina Conference is part of the United Methodist Church. As such, it is governed by the Book of Discipline, which determines things like who is and who is not a minister, who is and who is not a lay person acting on behalf of the conference, what associations and what other entities can the conference be affiliated with. This becomes critically important because these are some of the key issues in both the Lockins and in the Dillard cases. As a result of those issues, when we initially filed our response to pleadings, we filed both a 12B6 and a 12B1 argument. In the division of our time, I intend to really speak about the 12B1 issues and the things that are unique to the conference, and Mr. Lapidus is going to discuss the other issues that overlap both parties so that we do not have repetition. When looking at a 12B1 motion, it is a motion that must be decided initially and as early as possible in the case. Well, did you, did you notice it for, um, for hearing? 
Your Honor, we initially tried to notice the Lackins case for hearings on both the 12B1 and the 12B6. We had hearings that were discussed between the parties. We were trying to get them scheduled, and we were in the middle of COVID, so that hearing did not get scheduled prior to the motion to transfer. However, it's very clear that when Judge Bell heard the motion to transfer, she fully understood this issue. I gave a full argument on the 12B1 motion, and she even paraphrased back what the argument was stating. So, Ms. Kutno, your position then is that the 12B motion has to be heard before or should be heard before if a court is going to refer this to a three-judge panel. That 12B1 has to be heard because it is a jurisdictional question. Under your position, the conference should be out pursuant to 12B1, which then the constitutional challenge would be irrelevant, essentially because there is no jurisdiction. That is exactly our opinion. Instead of having a full hearing and or ordering underlying discovery on the 12B1 issue or referring it back down for a full hearing on just that issue, Judge Bells chose to essentially hold it in abeyance. North Carolina and U.S. Supreme Court case law is clear that holding a case in abeyance when it's a 12B1 is essentially a denial of the 12B1 motion because part of the substantial right that you have under 12B1 is to not have to undergo litigation. That issue is determined before you have to resolve other issues outside of those raised by the ecclesiastical question. So that is why we feel that Judge Bell really um, got it wrong when it came to the 12B1 issue, and she should have either had a second hearing, referred that down, or affirmatively ruled on that issue instead of staying it, which as an end result gets us here, which so, is where we, sorry, ma'am. Oh, see, excuse me. Uh, so in this case, you're, are you saying that when, when it's an ecclesiastical entanglement doctrine issue, you, uh, it's an exception to the appellate rules that you, you know, that you must have a ruling on your motion? Yes, ma'am. And when you look at the case law on this issue, and we have cited it all in our briefs, it's very clear that one of the substantial rights that you're trying to protect is the protection from litigation itself. So when you look at 12B1 ecclesiastical entanglement cases, they are heard early, they are heard on an initial motion. And if it cannot be decided on motions, then the lower court can actually order specific discovery only as to the ecclesiastical issues in the case, not the full volume of the case, to prevent us from being really where we are here, which is arguing not just the ecclesiastical issue, but a bunch of other issues in the case that are beyond the scope of that issue. Did you cite any cases in which there was no order? Were there any 12B1 cases in which the, the, there was no ruling on? Uh, no, ma'am. All of our cases state that there should be an order and that it should be one in which that it is decided early. What we have cited, though, Your Honor, are cases that talk about the substantial right that you are protecting is the substantial right to prevent additional litigation, which is where I think that falls. By not having an order and by having the case proceed, you are losing and there's prejudice because you've lost that substantial right to not have litigation. And when you look at the rule itself under which the plaintiff or, you know, the plaintiffs in this case want to transfer to the three-judge panel, Rule 42 actually addresses this in two separate sections. 
In one section, it specifically says that all underlying issues in the case must be resolved before we move to a three-judge panel. And then it actually lists 12B1 as one of the issues that must be resolved prior to the transfer to the three-judge panel. So I believe that the legislature's intent was also to have rulings of this kind that don't have anything to do with the constitutionality of the SAFE Act be resolved prior to it being heard by the three-judge panel. We also saw that be upheld just in October by the Court of Appeals in a case called Hull versus Brown, which we cited in our reply, where essentially the same analysis was conducted. It was under a different act, but the same analysis was conducted. And they held that you have to resolve underlying issues that don't have to do with the constitutionality of a statute prior to it being transferred to the three-judge panel. So the 12B1 issue must be resolved prior to us arguing all of the other issues in this case having to do with the constitutionality of the SAFE Act, having to do with any of the other issues, or the substantial right we have under the ecclesiastical entanglement doctrine gets eroded and essentially is lost, and it is lost in a way that cannot be fixed or recovered. So I'm, I'm looking at your brief, I think, on page 16 and 17. It says the crux of your argument on the 12B1 um, is really relates to employment. What, were these people employed, correct? So that is, that is part of it. So it, in, in, in this case, Judge Collins, and I, I do not want to confuse the panel, um, that is one of the key issues that they're alleging. It was a hiring, a firing of, of an individual. We also have additional cases that are filed really from the same base facts. In some of those other cases, there are more direct challenges as to whether or not an involved individual was or was not a preacher, which directly goes to the entanglement even deeper. But the Book of Discipline also involves whether or not we can have an association with an entity. What are the parameters for that? How do they do that? So to resolve this case, our underlying argument is you're going to have to review the Book of Discipline. And that's something that we have not argued yet because Judge Bell held it in abeyance. And what we're really saying is this needs to be sent back down for that to be fully vetted and fully argued. So the next piece that I would like to say on this is where we really saw additional harm on behalf of both the conference and on the children's home is when we moved from Lackens to the second case that's been consolidated today, to Dillard, what we saw was really a double down of the same issue. So we have an order that is facially incorrect in Dillard. In Dillard, the order says that a hearing was held on those issues. No hearing was held. In fact, the motion was filed, the order was signed, the order was stamped into the record all before our side ever got notice that a hearing was going to be set. And in fact, we did get notice that a hearing was set for March, but the order had been signed, it had been stamped in April, well before we ever got notice. So we were denied notice and opportunity, which is a separate and independent violation of due process. It doubled down on all of the problems that we had on the 12B1 argument from Lackens and then raised a new and separate argument that we had to contend with in Dillard, which is that we were denied the very opportunity to fully brief the motions, 
to have any sort of responsive memorandum of any kind because Judge Bell actually signed the order before we were even given the date in May that we were supposed to have the hearings. Excuse me. Does it, does it make any difference that the statute doesn't seem to anticipate you having notice and opportunity to be heard? Because it provides that the trial court connects to a sponte. So, Your Honor, I think especially for the conference, it does very much matter because I do not believe that that is exactly what the statute says. The statute says that you can make that kind of motion at the judge's discretion, but not if there are underlying issues to be heard, including specifically the 12B1. So if the judge was going to do that, I believe she had to do it prior to her, her, she had to wait until she'd heard all of the underlying arguments before she made that transfer. And in fact, that's what the new hall case actually talks about in some detail. And in addition, we did not raise a facial challenge on our side. Uh, we only raised an as applied challenge and that seems to be different under the statute. And Mr. Lapidus is gonna go into that in some level of detail. But the way you read the statute, you still have to resolve all of the underlying issues that do not involve the challenged constitutional piece to be able to even have that as an option and she had not yet done that. But so are you, are you still arguing then that, that you're entitled to notice an opportunity to be heard on the motion to transfer? So, so, so we certainly, in the Dillard case, yes, we should be heard, but to make clear, our argument will be the same, which is you must resolve the 12B1 issue first. And if you did not understand that in the Lackins case, give us an opportunity to explain it to you again or in more detail where we were denied that opportunity. But our argument will be that the 12B1 issue must be heard first. It must be resolved prior to any transfer for a, for a challenge to be heard by the three judge panel. And is, is the last point I will say before I cede the rest of my time to Mr. Lapidus. I do think it's very telling in this case as to the strength of our arguments. When you look through the, the documents and the filings from the other side, they do not address the 12B1 issue. It's clear from the case law that it is a substantial right and not hearing it early on and directly does violate that substantial right. So I'll reserve my time for rebuttal. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Judge Zachary, and may it please the court. I'm Lauren Lapidus with Nelson Mullins uh, for the Children's Home Defendants uh, in the Appeals Consolidated for argument this afternoon. Mr. Lapidus, you may remove your mask if oh. you like. Oh, thank you. First, uh, with respect to the Dillard appeal um, that my colleague for the conference, uh, I think, stated the gravamen of our concern well, um, that notice and an opportunity to be heard on motions is a bedrock principle of fundamental fairness that's codified in the North Carolina Rules of Civil Procedure, um, a system of jurisprudence which veers from that principle uh, no longer sufficiently protects the rule of law as it must. And I know, Judge Jackery, you mentioned, well, um, the, the statute allows for you know, some, some type of sua sponte action by, by the trial court. But I think the point here is that the North Carolina Rules of Civil Procedure control 
and they control rules five and seven control, and they do because if you look at Judge Bell's order, she did not enter an, a sua sponte uh, order on her own motion. Um, the text of the order in Dillard is plain and unambiguous that it allowed the plaintiff's motion to transfer, which North Carolina Rule of Civil Procedures 5 and 7 require notice and an opportunity to be heard. And so is it your contention then that an ex parte order is more offensive than a sua sponte order? I would think that um, in this instance, um, the ex parte order was, was particularly egregious. Um, and I think just taking a moment um, to look at the text of the order, I think reveals that um, because the text of the order um, explains that it was heard on April 15, 2021, even though there was a notice of hearing for a different date. Um, and we all know that that's not true. Uh, the order also says that it's on plaintiff's motion to transfer, not the court's sua sponte motion. And it also says, and the court having heard and considered this matter, including the briefs and arguments of the parties, is of the opinion that the motion should be decided as follows. So I think the ex parte order here, I think, strikes at the very core of the rule of law that this court is, is supposed to protect. And for that reason, uh, we think we have a substantial right um, to be heard um, under 1277, um, uh, because the Supreme Court said in Craver that it's critically important uh, for fair and impartial hearing where non-movements have a chance to oppose the motion sought, and that wasn't, that wasn't allowed here. And the real trouble with that is, well, why can't this be protected after final judgment? The answer to that is, well, we were deprived of the ability to make a record for appellate review. Uh, and that can't be corrected later. Uh, Can I ask if, if, in this case, if Judge Bell had, had merely, on her own, transferred the case, would, would we be here on this argument, or is it particularly offensive because of the verbiage in this order that actually didn't happen? It, well, Judge Collins, it's not only the verbiage in the order that's, that's improper. It is the process that the record shows, which is that a motion was filed, the hearing was noticed for a certain day, and then an order was entered allowing that motion, hearing for, which was on a hearing for a day that never occurred. So, so my question is, could Judge Bell simply just transfer it without a motion from the other party without hearing arguments um, and just do it on I, her own? I, I, don't, I don't think so, because even, even if the court could uh, enter an order on her own motion, then the court still needs to give the other side a chance to be heard as to why that motion shouldn't be allowed. Um, that's a cornerstone of due process. Um, I don't know of any authority in the state which says a court could enter, uh, could, could um, you know, file its own motion or exhibit its intent to um, exercise its uh, sua sponte authority to uh, move something on its own motion, but not give the opposing party a chance to say why that shouldn't be allowed. Well, isn't due process, doesn't that really go to um, your initial service with the summons and complaint? I mean, does that really go, I mean, aren't we more talking about procedural regularity here rather than a constitutional issue? Well, I don't think so, Judge Zachary, because we've cited the American Towers case in our brief, and what it says is that a legal defense cannot be taken away without a notice and opportunity to be heard before that legal defense is taken away. But that's precisely what happened here. I mean, our 12B6 legal defense that um, this complaint should be dismissed because we made an as-applied constitutional challenge was taken away without giving us a chance to be heard. Was it taken away or was it just put before, uh, you know, a different panel? I mean, and 
put in a different venue or, well, not venue, but transferred to a different judge. Well, well actually, Judge Eckery, it was transferred to a court that does not have jurisdiction to decide it. It doesn't have jurisdiction to decide it because there's a pending 12B1 motion that hasn't been resolved. And Hull versus Brown teaches us um, this published opinion from this court that Judge Tyson, writing for this court in Hull versus Brown, said those three judge panel st transfer statutes do not apply, cannot apply, until the underlying 12B1 was heard. So that ex parte order sent um, the case to a place that cannot receive it and cannot adjudicate it as a matter of subject matter jurisdiction, which gives us a compelling reason to allow the cert petition because otherwise the parties will be left like the parties in Holtstock where we're litigating this for four years and then the parties are going to be set back to the starting line because anything that that uh, three-judge panel does in the case is going to be void ab initio. It's going to be void because of what Hull versus Brown teaches us. Well, if the case is remanded on the basis of crying, uh, you know, as as you know, as an as applied challenge based on the, the uh, wording in your pleadings, uh, wouldn't that satisfy the the, the uh, 12B1 issue? Because if it went back, if it was if it were remanded to Judge Bell, and she were able to address this, then wouldn't that take care of that the 12B1 issue? It's, well, as, as long well? as the I'm sorry, Judge, as long as the 12B1 issue is resolved first, that's that's first priority for the Superior Court. Uh, if this court were to agree with our position to vacate and remand it, 12B1 gets heard first. Then there's a, a hearing in Dillard on the motion to transfer that plaintiff filed. Um, and then Judge Bell can decide, um, given the benefit of this court's uh, instructions in Hull versus Brown and in Cryon about how, you know, what to do. Um, so, Is there any case law saying that she, that she cannot act sua sponte? She cannot transfer the cases um, to the three-judge panel sua sponte? Not, is not there without, any case law? There's, there's no case law that says that because this statute is new and it's not developed yet, but I think you have to read the statute in line with the rules of civil procedure. Um, and if there's a sua sponte motion, you have, to give the other, you have to give everyone a chance to be heard as to why that, you know, if the plaintiff files it or if the court files it, there's still a motion for relief. And the party needs to be given a chance to st stand up and say why it shouldn't be allowed. And if we, if we live in a world where we only allow, uh, if we live in a legal world in this state where we only allow procedural due process or the notice of an opportunity to be heard, um, if we think we agree with what's going to be said, then I think we chart a real perilous course for a system of law that um, doesn't, doesn't honor that principle. Um, moving, moving to the Lackens appeal uh, for a moment, uh, I think that this court should be guided by Cryon's analysis on several fronts. Um, like in Cryon, a petition for writ of certiorari uh, is appropriate here. There's merit to the underlying appeal, and the interest of justice supports certiorari review. There are two main reasons why that is right off the bat, even without getting into um, deciding whether it's a, a facial or as applied challenge. One, it's because of Hull versus Brown. The court sent, sent the um, 12B6 to a a court that can't receive it as a matter of subject matter jurisdiction. Um, and number two, under Cryon, we, uh, it's, it's, the record conclusively establishes that um, Children's Home did not make or lodge a properly raised facial challenge. And what Cryon teaches is that if you have not lodged a properly raised facial challenge, that, it, that kind of challenge is, in, is incapable of being transferred to a three-judge panel, and Cryon explained that there are a series of certain pleadings that qualify in that, in that um, 
classification zone, and uh, a 12B6 motion, Cryonix confirmed, is not one of them. So for those two reasons right off the bat, uh, vacating and remanding is appropriate. Um, and finally, with respect to the as-applied versus facial challenge issue, we did uh, make an as-applied challenge to both GS1-56B and Session Law 2019-245, Section 4B, which is what I'll call the two-year catch-all, uh, because we are not uh, challenging and contending that the statute is incapable, those, that both of those statutes are incapable of constitutional application in every single context. Um, and I think that the court should be guided by uh, the Supreme Court's opinion in Booker. And Booker says, it's a quote, it's short, but it's poignant, worth, worth repeating here. The proper question for consideration is whether the act as applied will interfere with rights which have vested at the time the act took effect. Our as-applied challenge seeks to invalidate 156B only as alleged, where the 10-year pre-existing limitation period had already expired and defendants' right to be free from revived civil exposure had vested. So here, uh, when you just sort of plug and chug the numbers, plaintiff's 10-year statute ran in 1987 when he turned 28, and when GS 56, 1-56B uh, became effective on December 1st of 2019, um, which is controlled by Section 9C, Part 4 of the Session Law, the SAFE Act, defendants' right not to be sued had already vested. But, of course, there are other classes of defendants, like we learned in Cryon, um, who don't qualify uh, under that uh, vestiture. So we don't challenge the constitutionality of the statute um, where it could never operate unconstitutionally because there are a class of, uh, of defendants for whom it could operate constitutionally. And a similar analysis applies to um, the two-year catch-all. Our as-applied challenge... Um, was where the pre-existing statute of limitations had already expired um, when the revival provision took effect. Um, but we do not challenge a scenario, as specifically argued in our brief to, to the uh, Superior Court, where the statute could operate constitutionally. That's where plaintiff had not yet turned 21 when the um, general two-year catch-all became effective on 1 December of 2019. Then the plaintiff turned 21 sometime over the next month, and then plaintiff filed suit any time during that two-year period not under the pre-existing statute which had expired, but under the two-year catch-all which now controls. And Cryon teaches that this court is not free to impute a facial challenge on a party who did not make one, which is presently what the trial court did here. We follow the party presentation doctrine and, and defer to the parties to make their own um, argument to the trial court. And in fact, when you read uh, my friend's brief for the plaintiff, he doesn't dispute that we made an as-applied challenge to the two-year catch-all. He says, that, he says the test is different, but that's not so. He says the test is, well, does the as-applied challenge sound reasonable? But that's not the test. The proper test is whether our challenge seeks to invalidate the statute in all circumstances and applications such that it could never operate constitutionally. And principles of judicial restraint counsel this court to follow Cryon and not impute an official challenge when we have raised what is an as-applied challenge, where the statute could operate constitutionally, at least in one scenario. For, for these reasons, and those in our petition and brief, we ask this court in Dillard, hear our immediate appeal based on the substantial right doctrine under 1-277, or allow our petition for writ of certiorari, vacate the illegal order uh, entered ex parte on plaintiff's motion, and remand the cause with instructions to the superior court to first address the conference's 12B1 motion, make a ruling on it, and then hold a hearing on plaintiff's transfer motion where proper notice of hearing um, and to make a record for appellate review is provided by the district court, by the superior court. And in Lackens, we respectfully request that this court allow our petition for writ of certiorari 
vacate the erroneous order sending defendants 12B6 to a court that is jurisdictionally barred from receiving it and remand with instructions likewise to hold a 12B1 hearing and then hold a new hearing so that the Superior Court can apply this Court's directives in whole and cryon for determining um, what kind of challenge was made if this Court thinks that's appropriate. Thank you for your time. Thank you. I'll stand ready if you have any questions. No, thank you. Thank you. Please the court. My name is Matthew White. This is my co-counsel Richard Serbin. We represent the plaintiffs Larry Dillard and Michael Lakins in this case. And we respectfully request that this court dismiss these appeals as premature and interlocutory. I think Where the Cryon case is concerned, I think that that case is quite distinguishable and that this court is not bound by any precedent that that may have set. Why? So in the Cryon case, the constitutional challenge was a challenge to Section 1-17E, which was uh, opened up the ability to file a civil claim for child sexual abuse within two years of a criminal conviction. The provision at issue in our case is a revival provision. It's very simply a revival provision. Any claim that's time barred pursuant to the statute of limitations that existed prior to the enactment of the act is revived. It's a revival provision. Um, the fact that it may not have, the fact that the court may have determined that it was as applied in the Cryon case, I don't think should be controlling in the case of, of, uh, of the revival provision. I think the fact that it is an actual facial challenge is readily apparent by the amount of mental gymnastics you have to go through just to understand their hypothetical for a defendant to whom the revival provision can apply. But it's not really hypothetical. I mean, if you do the math, it seems like it, it would be constitutional under your theory to those claims that accrue between January 1st, 2017 and December 31st, 2018, right? Well, the statute applies to claims that have been previous, that, that, that have been time barred, that have been, um, they've lost their ability to bring the claim because of the statute of limitations. Right. If you file a claim within that two-year period under that statute, it necessarily means that your statute had run. Therefore, you're bringing it under that revival period. Under the vested 
rights theory, the defense's theory, if your statute had run within the revival period and then you file a claim, wouldn't the defendant's rights to that statute of limitations defense have vested and therefore they would have that I think they were talking about at the time the act was passed, though, correct? So the act was passed, but then claims accrued after the act, but the statute also ran after the act. The, the statute of limitations, it, if it expired within that revival period, mm-hmm. then that potential defendant can still raise the fact that their rights had vested because the statute of limitations as it had expired. They would, the plaintiff wouldn't bring a complaint under that revival provision unless their statute of limitations had run. Okay. So I think it's very, it's very clear when you kind of take a step back and look at it that, that this is a revival statute. The revival statute revives claims that were previously time barred by the statute of limitations. The whole purpose is to revive expired claims. If you're bringing a case under the revival provision, which is what these cases are, solely brought under that, not any of the other um, statutes that were affected by the Safe Child Act, then if you're bringing it under the revival provision, then that means your statute had run, it had expired, the defendants can claim that they had a vested right because the statute had already run whenever that may, may take place, even if it's within that revival window. You know, if it runs, it runs, and a defendant can say, once that ran, our right became vested in that statute of limitations defense. I think another distinguishing factor is that the trial court, or I'm sorry, <laughs> This court in Cryon, in the opinion, stated that the trial court did not make a determination itself that defendants' constitutional challenges were, in fact, a facial challenge. We had an argument in Lakins, Lakins, excuse me, and the trial court in our case did make a determination that it was indeed a facial challenge. She wrote it in the order. We argued about it in Lakins, Lakins, excuse me. Um, which is very different from, from what that statement there from the majority opinion in Cryon. Another distinguishing factor is that a major issue in Cryon was that the order transferred the entire action. It transferred the action to the three-judge panel. The order, the orders in our case, explicitly only transfer the constitutional issue while staying the arrest of and maintaining jurisdiction over the rest of the action. Um, Can you explain to me why the trial court would not hear the 12B1 jurisdictional issue prior to transferring? It seems like case law and the statute require that. So if you're getting there. Yes. Yes. 100%. Um, So throughout their briefs, the defendant conference stated that they asserted their First Amendment right to be free um, 
from judicial entanglement in religious matters. However, if you look at their actual motion to dismiss, it says nothing about judicial entanglement in religious matters. It's a bare statement that these claims should be dismissed because the court lacked subject matter jurisdiction pursuant to 12b1. Below that, it says, we will expound on all, I'm paraphrasing, but uh, we'll expound on all, all of the basis for our claims in a forthcoming brief. A brief never came. Uh, I heard there was, there was a claim that we were working on a hearing for those 12B motions, but that was never discussed with us. They were never noticed. What was noticed was the motion to transfer to the three-judge panel. And if you look at the transcript, Plaintiff's counsel, we were there, we were ready, we had fully briefed all of the non-constitutional issues. We said, Judge, we, we are prepared to argue the non-constitutional issues if you want to knock those out of the way right now. But we, we would really think that this constitutional challenge, for the sake of judicial efficiency, should go to the three-judge panel. In our... It, in the defendant's brief leading into the hearing on that motion to transfer, religious entanglement was not mentioned once, not a single time. The first time we heard about it was as a surprise argument at the hearing for the motion to transfer. And Judge Bell acknowledged that by saying, you know, I, I, she, after there was the whole oral argument, our oral argument about religious entanglement, which we were not expecting because we had no reason to know, neither did the court. Um, she gave me the opportunity to argue against it, understanding that it had not been briefed out or anything, so I was kind of at a disadvantage. And so she says, so I say, wrapping up, not to mention that the 12B1 was not briefed out, so she says, yes, I was going to say that. I'm only, talking, I'm only taking that argument into consideration for the purpose of determining this motion to transfer. And she would take it under advisement. So, that's the one thing. They could have had an opportunity if they had actually asserted it. But contrary to what they argued, they didn't actually assert it. Not, not until we got in front of the judge, not even in the briefs preceding the hearing, did they even mention it. And then that was what their whole argument was about. Um, so that's number one. At, in terms of staying the motion, it's been long held in North Carolina. Trial courts have broad discretionary authority to stay a case or any part thereof. We presented to the court for a hearing on the motion to transfer, fully briefed out the other non-constitutional issues in the event that she wanted to decide on the motions to dismiss portions other than the constitutional issues. When we arrived at a hearing, not having that, not having that 
been briefed, um, it was the trials court, in their discretion, decided to take it under advisement, hold it in abeyance, and stay that portion while the constitutionality of the act. Just that issue was sent to the three-judge panel for determination. Um, in terms of the statute, it's interestingly worded for sure, uh, but in Rule 42B4, I think there's a key phrase in here that is being overlooked. It's that, and this kind of this applies to the 12B1 motion as well as the properly raised argument. Um, so, any facial challenge shall be heard by a three-judge panel if a claimant raises such a challenge, and it goes on to explain a properly raised challenge, whether it's in the complaint or the defendant's answer. In the beginning of the next sentence, in that event, i.e., if it was properly raised, then the court shall, on its own motion, transfer that portion of the action challenging the validity of the act of the General Assembly if all other matters have been resolved. Um, that wasn't the case here. This wasn't a transfer on the court's own motion. This was a request by the plaintiff for the court to transfer, recognize that this was a facial challenge, and to transfer it for determination at the three-judge panel. Holdstock says, and you know, we admit it wasn't in a, in a responsive pleading. It wasn't properly raised. But Holstock states there is nothing in here that prevents the trial judge, in its discretion, from transferring a constitutional challenge that was not properly, properly raised and did not comport with these requirements of this rule. So does that bring us full circle to the lack of hearing, then? Sure. Yeah. So if it's not properly raised and we're here on a discretionary ruling as opposed to potentially required transfer, then, then doesn't there have to be hearing on that? So I think this is another. I think this is an instance where, number one, the context really matters. And number two, the proper course for challenging an order that the defendant might consider procedurally irregular is not an appeal in the first instance. It's make a motion with the trial court of the, to the court who issued the order that you would like to challenge. That cures the record on appeal you can argue why you think it wasn't. It, it, the case that they cite for the notice and opportunity to be, to be heard over and over, Craver versus Craver, that was about a denied motion to set aside an order. Um, the court in Collins states whether an irregular judgment 
should be set aside as a question which must be presented by a motion in the cause and not by appeal. And the rules are based on sound reason. They furnish an expeditious and inexpensive method by which courts of first instance may correct their own lapses from procedural irregularity. So if they had moved the court to reconsider the motion, then could it had a hearing, cleaned up the motion, we wouldn't be here a year later. Um, is, is a motion for reconsideration a necessary motion for this court? No, it's just an option. Okay. Uh, uh, in terms of at the trial court level? As far as preserving that issue for us? Pres yeah, no, no, I, I just think that's an option. Okay. A motion to reconsider, a motion to vacate, a motion to set aside. Um, just, just some type of motion in the cause, is that what you're saying? I'm sorry? Some type of motion in the cause? Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. Or even calling us and say, hey, this was wild. Did you know that this was happening? How about we enter a consent order? Sure, let's do it. Let's clean this up. Let's avoid interlocutory appeals and the incredible delay um, and resources that, it, that they expend just to, you know, to prepare to be here today. So I think that, and it, not only that, but the right to notice and an opportunity to be heard, this is also um, explained at length in the Collins decision, is, is not a due process or a constitutional issue. Once you're served with original process, your constitutional right to notice and an opportunity to be heard has been satisfied. Anything after that, motions, <clears throat> the, the Collins Court calls it procedural notice. Um, it's a procedural irregularity, in other words. There's no egregious due process error here. And I, I think... That's from the legal perspective, but from the, the context of this is that the court did hear an argument in virtually the identical case. The only difference was the victim, Lakins. The motion, exactly the same. The, the motions to dismiss, verbatim, the exact same. The, the motion was submitted and order signed by the exact judge who heard the arguments in Lakin's. Would it be necessary in the court's discretion to rehear the same arguments when their motions to dismiss were identical? Um, I think just that the context and, and that fact just kind of underscores why this is not some sort of failure, egregious due process error. They, in fact, did have the exact same things argued. And if they were unhappy with the order being ex parte, saying that there was a hearing when there wasn't, they should have requested, um, presented a motion in the cause and not filed 
an interlocutory appeal that does not affect a substantial right. And just so that I'm clear, is the order in both of those cases verbatim as well? Mm-hmm. Okay. So the in order in one case that had a hearing. Well, yeah, we just took the order from Lackins and, and, and put a bit as a proposed order and filed it with our motion. Um, and then it ended up being signed. Well, and in the other two cases, um, uh, it was basically the same suit, right? Exactly same thing. Yeah. Same judge, same verbatim motions to dismiss, verbatim uh, orders transferring. Yeah. I also think. that the 12B1 issue, one of the, the main reasons they're saying they are being deprived of a right just by holding it in advance is that uh, they have to go through all the litigation and discovery. It's not true in this case, that everything has been staged. It's just the constitutional issue that's being presented, number one. Number two, the underlying merits of that claim are, are, are not there. It's the natural principles of law apply to negligence type torts when it comes to um, religious entities. There's, there's nothing in their book of discipline that's going to be meddled with when we're trying a case on whether um, these children were sexually abused by these house parents and whether they knew about it or not. But, you know, that's, I'd be hard pressed to, to think that there's anything in a book of disciples about, you know, that kind of thing or, or that, that that's even has anything to do with religion. It's, it's a secular issue. Um, that's number one. Number two, the fact that in the complaint, plaintiffs say that um, one of the abusers was a preacher, but it says that it just in one place that he was a lay preacher who substituted when the main minister wasn't there. It, it, it has nothing to do with his, him being a preacher. <laughs> and I, 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 are, aren't we getting into the merits of that motion? Though? We are, we are, we are. Which would have, you know, it's a could have argued it if we had known that that's what the basis of their 12B1 motion was at the hearing for the motion to transfer. Um, so I think really what it comes down to is, number one, cryon is distinguishable. You're not bound by that. The, the, the statute at issue in both of them are different. The whole action in that case was transferred to the three-judge panel. This case, it's just the civil, um, just the uh, constitutional challenge. And in that case, 
this court said that the trial court did not make a determination itself that the defendant's constitutional challenges were in fact a facial challenge. They didn't notice. They, she said, having reviewed the materials, arguments, I decide that this is actually a facial challenge, because it is. Um, nothing that defendants argue affect a substantial right. Nothing changes the fact that this is a completely premature interlocutory appeal that really this court doesn't even have jurisdiction to hear because it's so far from being a final judgment. It doesn't affect a substantial right. And the grounds for granting a petition for writ of certiorari are also not present in this case. Um, important or significant issues of public interest. The constitutionality of the act is important and significant. This, the procedure for how we figure that out, is not for the public interest. It is maybe for them, for us, sure, it's interesting, but it's not a significant um, issue of public interest. The need for efficient administration of justice, that's what these three judge panels are designed to do, is to streamline the, the process and especially in a situation like this where that window is so small, you know, the longer the constitutionality is up in the air, the more of a um, of a chilling effect it has can on you, people. Can you just educate me? If a three-judge panel determines that the case was sent to it erroneously, it, can, it sends it back to the trial court. Am I correct? Uh, I don't know for sure, but I would imagine so. Can it rule on a, on a as-applied challenge, a three-judge panel? I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Um, but, you know, just kind of going off the, the ethos of hold stock, there's nothing in the statute prohibiting them from doing that. There's no case law that's saying prohibiting them from doing that. Um, so, you know, When the Supreme Court says there is no more effective way to procrastinate the administration of justice than bringing successive interlocutory appeals before this court, that's the defendants are proving that point very clearly here, not only by the number of these cases that are being appealed, but they're unnecessary premature appeals. What's being lost right now? other than a chance to have, what's really being lost is a chance to have the, the constitutionality of this act vetted out, you know, by, by, by having it, it stayed and being here. So um, plaintiffs respectfully request that this appeal be dismissed as it does not affect a substantial right. The grounds 
for granting a uh, petition for writ of certiorari are not met. And if this um, court does entertain this appeal, we respectively request that it be denied because there was a facial challenge lodged. The court did have the power to transfer it and to stay the rest of the proceedings, and that's exactly what happened. Mr. White, I reviewed the order uh, in this case, and the court doesn't make a finding that it has jurisdiction, which was challenged by the 12B1. Do you agree that the 12B1 subject matter jurisdiction can be raised at any time? Um, a, a finding that it had court has to have subject to enter that order. Court has to have subject matter jurisdiction right. to adjudicate the issue, correct? Right. Um, you agree that that issue, the twelve B one issue, was not resolved at the trial court level. It was. It, it was not. It was stayed. It, it was held in abeyance until the constitutional issue was determined. How do we know? given the posture of the case with the 12B1 not being lodged but not uh, determined by the trial court, how do we know if the three-judge panel even has subject matter jurisdiction to address the constitutional issue as it relates to these parties? Um, well, number one, it's kind of, of a rhetorical question because right. the rules require the 12B1 to be determined first, so we don't have to ask this question later, is my understanding of how the rules operate. Right. Well, and you know, we we presented ready and willing to argue the the twelve B one motion. Um, it was never briefed. There was never. There's no indication that that was the basis of their twelve B one motion. Um, I still believe strongly that the trial court has broad discretionary authority to stay any part of the case. Um, they also have the broad discretionary authority to. If the trial court doesn't have subject matter jurisdiction, how can the trial court stay that portion of the case? And that's, a, that's an unresolved question. We don't know the answer to it. It's been raised, but we, it hasn't been answered. Right. If the trial and court doesn't have subject matter jurisdiction, how can the trial court stay the issue? <clears throat> Fair, fair question. Thank you, sir. <laughs> um, but I, I think if you look at the, the, I think, and that's why I was bringing, discussing the merits a little bit, underlying it, because even the case law that that they cite states pretty unequivocally that new, neutral principles of law apply to negligence type tort actions such as these. If we had, you know, had the opportunity to argue that, I think the, the trial court understood that it probably, it was not likely to succeed because we argued it as best we could at that hearing for the motion to transfer, which you can, which is in, in the transcript. So it was, um, Argued, however, it wasn't fully briefed, so we didn't have the, the full hearing on that particular issue. Um, of particular interest to me is that there's no finding by the court in the order that it has jurisdiction. 
the order is devoid of any mention of the court having jurisdiction. <clears throat> that it has jurisdiction over the conference? Oh. Generally, these orders would say the court, the matter's properly before the court, the court has uh, jurisdiction over the parties and over the subject matter of the action. This order has none of that language. It doesn't, it, it alleged, the order says that uh, there was a hearing conducted as to at least one of them, and it also, it doesn't say anything that the matter being properly, about the matter being properly before the court, or that the court has jurisdiction over the parties or the subject matter, which is generally, that's kind of the threshold analysis that the court does generally uh, and again you know I, I would contend that to the extent that that is an irregularity it would have been best addressed at the trial court level for the reasons um, stated in the Collins decision, Collins case thank you any further questions anything no. any further? thank yeah. you thank you so much Rebuttal. Oh, okay. Thank Mr. You, Lapidus, can I, can I start you off with a question? Of course I have it. Thank you, Judge Zachary. May I start you off with a question? Of course. Are you contending that an unasserted 12B1 claim or the 12B1 motion presents a substantial right entitling you to uh, immediate appeal? Uh, I think it does, Judge Zachary, and I'm going to let my, my friend for the conference uh, uh, expound on that because that's, that's her wheelhouse, her client, her issue, and I don't, I don't want to uh, step on any toes, but um, I think it does because if you look at the, the text of the order, um, the order, I think, unambiguously and plainly shows that the issue on 12B1 um, was before the court. Um, and it declined to rule on it, knowing that it was there. Um, and Judge Carpenter mentioned subject matter jurisdiction can be raised at any time in any way, even for the first time during oral argument in, in the North Carolina Supreme Court. Um, Judge Collins, I know you, you asked a question of my friend for the plaintiff um, about can a three-judge panel um, basically ping-pong the case back depending on what it thinks and uh, I think that that question is conclusively established in the crying opinion um, and, and I know there was some, some good analysis uh, back and forth on that point and you know I disagree with that don't you Mr. Lapidus because yeah. you argued it yes your honor um, <laughs> and and for the time being I, I just judge Collins point you to uh, paragraph 23 um, in paragraph 23 um, of the majority opinion says nor is the trial court free to transfer a matter to a three-judge panel so that the three-judge panel may decide whether a facial challenge was raised. So at least as it stands at the moment, um, that, that is the law of the state. Um, but that seems to be sort of in the first instance versus it was decided there was a three, you know, there was a constitutional challenge and then it was overruled once it got there. Seems to be a different scenario. I, I think that, I, I see your point. Um, I, 
but I, I think there is no jurisprudence right now on the point of whether three judges can overrule one, sure. you know, on the same point, because they're all superior court judges. So I, I think that's a little bit of a nuance um, that I think Crian tried to address as best it could at, at the time, and I think there's a good debate going on about that. Um, one other point to mention is um, um, my friend for the plaintiff argued that we're relegated to make a motion in the cause versus a direct appeal, and I think that's an important um, issue to hit um, here on rebuttal. Um, even if uh, we, we do believe that there was a constitutional problem making it an erroneous order because we were deprived of a, of a defense, but even if we weren't, and even if it's irregular, we're not relegated to a Rule 54 motion for reconsideration. Um, we do not lose the option to make a direct appeal under 1277. Plaintiff's citation to the Collins case is an opposite for several reasons. One, Collins was filed long before the Court of Appeals was even established, and it came into existence before the modern North Carolina Rules of Civil Procedure were codified. Number two, when you read Collins's holding, and I've, I've read it several times, it, yes, it was operating under the old pleading code, but it dealt with setting aside irregular judgments not in a regular interlocutory order like we have here. In fact, there's only one paragraph in Collins that talks about interlocutory orders. It's paragraph 11 in Collins, and it says such orders may be set aside under a statute that no longer exists because it's in the old code. So there's no directive in Collins, and there's no directive in, in the law of the state that relegates us to only making a motion in the cause for irregular orders under 54B. And in fact, the modern jurisprudence of the state says just the opposite. Please look at the Scruggs versus Chavez case cited in our reply brief. Scruggs is a unanimous published opinion that dealt with procedural notice deficiency, just like we have here, and this court addressed it by uh, vacating or reversing and remanding, um, instructing the trial court to hold a hearing, precisely the relief we seek here, and so too in the Choice Hotels case, um, where uh, this court dealt with an interlocutory order on, where co-defendant did not get proper notice and a chance to be heard on the co-defendant's motion, and in that instance on direct appeal, um, whether it be on 1277 or on certiorari, um, decided that it was appropriate to address the issue um, and vacate and remand. So uh, we do have a choice, and we're not relegated to a motion in, in the cause. A few seconds left. I want to let my co-counsel uh, take over. Well, Thank you. Well, uh, and, I, we're, and we'll, I'm going to give you a little extra okay. time because we gave them a little extra time. But Okay, so what you're saying is that, that there is a, that does present a, a substantial right? In Dillard? That the uh, notice and opportunity to, to be heard does present a substantial right. Yes, in, in Dillard, because in, in Lackens we're here on a cert petition only, and we made that concession in, in, our, in our filings. Um, and, and the reason we say that is be, because the, no, the notice and opportunity to be heard can't be fixed after final judgment because we didn't get a chance to make a record um, at the trial court for review after final judgment. We'd be, we, after final judgment, we'd have no way to come back up here to this court and say, here, here's how we preserve these arguments for appeal as to why the trial judge got it wrong, because we were deprived of the chance to make that, that argument in the first instance. Well, how do you respond to, to uh, your colleague's argument that, that you could have done that by filing a motion in the cause? You could have, you could have uh, made your record there. I think it's an option, but I don't think it's the only option. And I think the unique procedural posture here um, strongly suggests that the direct appeal under 1-277 um, and the certiorari petition were the right, the right approach. Um, I know this court can, can take judicial notice of all uh, records that are currently before it, and I encourage the court, there are two cases on the calendar, Biggs, uh, uh, I'm sorry, um, Doe and Braswell, but there's also a case called Biggs, and that's uh, Court of Appeals number 21546, tw COA 21546. Um, is that and still in briefing right now? It's going through briefing right now. That's correct. That's right, Judge Zachary. And 
the trouble, I think, is when you look at this pattern and practice of entry of these ex parte orders, they weren't — they were not ex meromoto orders or sua sponte orders, because you have an instance where the — the plaintiff sends a motion um, to the clerk for filing, along with a proposed order. Um, that is a, a highly unorthodox and bizarre practice, but it, it occurred here. And then uh, a week later, this ex parte order, which um, only happens in, by statute in very time-sensitive, you know, uh, injunctive relief situations, it comes back. Um, and then um, the plaintiff's counsel does the same thing. Um, and this trial judge, she didn't retain jurisdiction over the case. She wasn't a 2.1 judge, so somehow a a motion that went to the clerk's office, along with a proposed order, got upstairs to the T through the TCA to the same judge. She did the same thing in Doe and the same thing in Braswell. And in Biggs, that had to do with releasing child sexual abuse records. That was entered ex parte. So, so Judge Zachary, if there's any case, I think, um, that this court's uh, supervisory powers under 7832 to monitor what's going on below are appropriate, I mean, here it is. Well, how do you respond to uh, the plaintiff's no harm, no foul argument? Okay. Um, I think we would respond to the no harm, no foul in, in these ways. You know, what would we have said in Dillard that would have made a difference? How is it prejudicial? Um, the first way to answer that, Judge Zachary, is not having proper notice of a motion and the ability to oppose the relief is prejudice in itself, since we were deprived of the chance to make a record. But if we were only going to accord notice and an opportunity if we thought that the, the arguments had merit, then there would be no point to having notice and an opportunity to be heard. The, the arguments themselves, substantively, is, is not the point of, of, due, of notice and an opportunity to be heard. But nonetheless, here's how we were deprived of the chance to do the following that would have made a difference. In Dillard, in Doe, and in Braswell. We could have better developed and honed our argument based upon what we learned in Lackins, and we weren't given that choice. It, it, I think it's untenable to hold that these defendants on the transcript, on the record, on the briefs would have made a carbon copy of exactly what we said in Blackens in Dillard. I think that is building a bridge way too far. It, we needed to have a chance to sharpen our arguments. Alternatively, in light of, in light of um, Hull versus Brown or even before, we could have went back to the trial court, read the statute more, more carefully and said, okay, the trial court in light of co-defendant's 12B1 motion regarding ecclesiastical entanglement, that is a non-contingent matter to the constitutional challenge. This is not an argument that we made to Judge Bell and Lackens, but we could have said under Hull versus Brown, under the, even before Hull versus Brown, under the plain language of the statute, there is this ecclesiastical entanglement issue under Rule 12B1. It's a non-contingent matter. And three, under Hull versus Brown, that these three judge panel statutes do not apply. You have no jurisdiction. Well, you cannot transfer it. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Lab. Thank, thank you. Thank you. And, and I'll be brief. I really want to address the questions that both Judge Zachary and Judge Carpenter asked directly on the 12B1 motion. Judge Carpenter, I believe you're exactly right. The problem we have is that the order in Lackens did not retain jurisdiction and did not make clear that the court had jurisdiction in light of the 12B1 motion that was raised in which the court and Judge Bell specifically took under advisement during oral argument. And it is true that a 12B1 argument can be raised at any time. When the plaintiffs and subsequently Judge Bell essentially quadrupled down on the order in Lackens, they expanded the harm. 
And if there's one thing that we could have done differently, it would have been to brief the issue differently on the 12B1 issue. We were deprived of the right to even make the decision to do that because the order was signed in April when the hearing was set for May. We did not get notice of the hearing for the chance to file our reply briefs until after the order was already signed. It's very clear that the plaintiffs do not believe the 12B1 argument has any validity. In their reply in Dillard to the writ of certiorari, they said on page four that the appellant issues that we've raised are not important and have no significant impact. Nothing could be further than the truth when we're raising a 12B1 issue of ecclesiastical entanglement. Every case in North Carolina that has looked at this issue has said that there is a significant right to having your First Amendment issues ruled upon and that they must be ruled upon first or the thing and the harm that is happening is partially your continued involvement in the litigation, which is a substantial right that is being violated. As a result, we very strongly believe that the 12B1 argument must go back down to the lower court and must be resolved prior to any other argument. Thank you very much. But do y'all have any questions? I'm sorry. Thank you very much. Well, that concludes oral argument for these cases. Thank you, counsel, for your excellent arguments. Uh, we'll take this matter under advisement.